Okay, good evening. Wonderful to see so many people here and some new people. It's just lovely to see new people always. Um, and, um, and by now very old and familiar faces. It's just really feels good to be here with everyone. Um, we're gonna sit for a little while, um, 25 minutes, uh, as I said in the email. And, um, and then we'll have like some time for a question and answer discussion. It's not just you know, my answers, but other people might have things to, to say about the two questions I shared by email, um, but also any other questions that might come up tonight. Um, so um, no other questions have come by email, except the two that I mentioned. So if there's, I think should be time for, um, for questions uh, from the, the floor as it were tonight. Um, I don't expect the, my, my initial responses to the, the questions that I, I sort of summarized um, by email to be super long, but, um, but they're both really good questions. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, to addressing them. Um, but first, let's sit, okay. Uh, if you, if uh, any of you are new and haven't sat before, don't worry, just follow the directions. Um, and I think the only thing that I, I would like to put out there as a kind of practice reminder or thought, um, kind of to prime the heart and the mind before we sit together, um, is just a very basic core idea of practice that awareness heals. Um, there's something mysterious about the practice of awareness. Um, you know, I, I don't really fully understand why it has the effect it has, but, um, but just the act of awareness over time um, heals. We so often think we have to fix ourselves, change ourselves, do something different in order to, um, to feel better. Um, but as I think many of us know from experience, so often those things that we do um, don't help and sometimes even make things worse, you know. Um, and often what it takes is just the pausing, stopping long enough, pausing just to really notice what's going on, how we're actually feeling. And then as um, Sylvia said last week, she was thinking about what the experience of awareness with some kind of tension or the experience of being uncomfortable, what it did for her. It can sometimes just shift one's experience where um, what seems so oppressive, so solid um, shifts, sometimes even dissolves. Uh, into into thin air, um, and I think that is um, that's a very you know a common I think important experience um, associated with the practice of awareness, and it can happen with just discomfort because of a hot room. Sylvia, I'm talking about what you shared last week, or it can happen with grief or other kinds of suffering that we've carried for years, self-loathing. Um, it's the same thing. 
So um, please get in a comfortable position. We're gonna sit for 25 minutes. <clears throat> and just, um, you know, so that your breath can move freely. So you're relaxed, but alert. So please find whatever position will do that for you. Be relaxed, but alert. And sitting so that your breath can move with relative ease in and out of your body. And to begin, please just take a few deep, slow breaths, inhaling in through the nose, feeling your body fill up with air. And exhale slowly through your slightly open mouth, drawing the exhalation out nice and slow. In through the nose, and out through your slightly open mouth and just take two or three more deep breaths in this way. And once you've taken your last deep breath in this way, let your mouth come to a closed position, breathe in and out through the nose. And now please let your breath come and go at its own rhythm, no longer intentionally elongating it, but letting it just find its own pace, its own rhythm. As much as possible, try not to manipulate or control the breath in any way. And if you notice any tendency to control the breath, just notice that and see if you can release the impulse and let the breath just breathe itself. And that can be deep or shallow, evenly or erratically. There's no right way to breathe and the breath the shape of the breath may change throughout the course of this meditation. Just allow it to change, allow it to find its own path. Now please let your awareness move to your nose where you can feel the sensations produced by the breath as it enters and exits your body. Feel the sensations in your nostrils, in the soft tissue, the inside of your nose as air, as the breath passes over it.
We're not thinking about the breath. We're just feeling the physical sensations associated with the breath in the nose. And try to feel those sensations with as much detail as possible. Notice how the breath feels cooler when you breathe in than when you breathe out. Notice the texture of the breath. See if you can feel an entire inhalation from the very beginning to its end. And then the next exhalation from its beginning to its end. Quite naturally, over and over again, the mind will pull you away from the breath so that you completely lose track of what the breath feels like. You'll be lost in thought for a moment or perhaps even a few minutes at a time. As soon as you notice that you have become lost in thought, just acknowledge that fact silently or perhaps by saying something like thinking to yourself just to register the fact that you are lost in thought. Don't add any judgment. It's a very natural thing for the mind to think. Just once you acknowledge that you've been thinking, bring your awareness gently and without judgment back to the breath. We will each have to do this many, many times in the course of these few minutes. Don't complicate things by adding self-judgment. That was an interesting thing to notice if you feel tempted or compelled to judge yourself. Just once you notice thoughts or self-judgment, come back to the breath.
while you continue following the breath in this way, please include in your awareness the sensations in your hands. So wherever your hands are, however they are positioned, just feel the sensations in the palms, in the fingers, on the back sides of your hands. and see if you can hold in your awareness at the same time, the sensations in your hands and the sensations of the breath. If it's difficult to do this, it's okay to move gently back and forth between breath and hands, but once in a while, keep trying to hold both in awareness simultaneously. And with practice, it become possible and even easy to do, but it can be difficult at first. So be patient. As we continue to sit for a bit longer, you may start to feel a bit uncomfortable. You may feel a desire or an impulse to move your body to make yourself more comfortable. If you're experiencing anything like real pain, of course, please move your body. But Unless you feel like you are hurting yourself by not moving, I encourage you to see these sensations of discomfort, these impulses to move as interesting opportunities to study how our mind reacts to discomfort. Notice what it feels like to be uncomfortable and what kinds of thoughts and sensations arise in response. And try refraining from actually moving and instead study 
those responses. And then after you've studied them for a little bit, as ever, just return to the breath and to the sensations in your hands. Now, while you continue following the breath and feeling your hands, please add one more final anchor, which is the sounds in the environment around you. So you're not listening for particular sounds, but just opening yourself up to whatever sounds there may be around you. Open yourself up like a satellite disk, just receiving. So feel the breath, feel your hands, and at the same time, open yourself to the sounds around you. And if you can't hold all three at once, you can move between them one at a time. Once in a while, see if you can hold all three in awareness simultaneously.
If you notice a thought that has a particularly strong emotional charge that really seems to be captivating your mind, you might try labeling that thought by saying having a thought and then repeating whatever the content of the thought is, like, I can't do this, or this is too hard, or whatever it may be. Having a thought and then repeat the thought it can be a very powerful way to create some space between yourself and that thought, and also to begin to see clearly what kinds of thoughts have the strongest pull upon you. Don't do it for every thought, but just the ones that feel like they have a extra charge to them. And then return to the three anchors of breath, hands, and sound. We can sometimes get spacey at the end of a longer sitting. And it might be worth just doing the rounds and just checking. Am I feeling the breath? Am I feeling my hands? Am I hearing all the sounds around me?
So for the last few minutes of this meditation period, I'd like us to turn our practice towards loving kindness. So please now bring your awareness to the very center of your chest, your breastbone area, and feel the sensations there that are associated with the breath, the rise and fall of the chest. And you might even visualize the breath being drawn directly into your body through the center of the chest, the heart space. Just feel that for a few breaths. Feel how it feels to visualize the breath being drawn in here through the center of the chest. And now as you inhale, silently say to yourself, breathing in, dwelling in the heart. And as you exhale, say the following phrase, extending loving kindness to myself, exactly as I am. Breathing in, dwelling in the heart, extending loving kindness to myself, exactly as I am. And if how you feel right now is close hearted, then extend kindness to that very close-heartedness, for that is how you are right now. Can you make room in your heart for yourself exactly as you are right now? Breathing in, dwelling in the heart, extending loving kindness to myself exactly as I am. Not as we wish ourselves to be or expect ourselves to be, but as we are, exactly as we are. Okay, everyone, that's good for the sitting. Please take a moment, feel free to move your body, get comfortable. 
Um, so do you think if you have any questions, I'm, I'll be happy to, um, to take any questions at their time, but let me begin by just responding. Well, let me just begin with responding to the first question that I got last week. Um, and then maybe I'll leave some space in case anyone else wants to say anything about it. Um, and then, um, I'll move to the second one. Um, Okay, so I'm going to re read out again um, this first question, even though I, I put in the email. But I just attended your Zen session on Tuesday, January 25th, and I have a question that arose from your Dharma talk. I've practiced for many years, and I've always struggled with the second noble truth about craving. I liked how you framed craving as recognizing it, but not trying to stop it. I've always been torn on how to live my daily life with incorporating this part of the practice. How do I move forward in life while incorporating this practice? From striving with a career, deciding on taking a trip to relax, or simply to decide if one should learn a new skill, like learning to play the piano. How can one ensure time isn't simply filled rather than in being? So thank you to the person who sent this question in. Um, so, Here are a few just initial thoughts. Um, I always, my ears, my practice ears always prick up when I hear a phrase like, how can one ensure, right? That time isn't simply filled than in being. And there are different versions of this that people who practice ask all the time, like, how can I make sure I'm doing this right? How can I ensure I'm doing that right, right? Um, and I think um, the interesting thing isn't, I think, to answer the question directly, like how to make sure, but to, I think turn the gaze around at the voice that's wanting to be sure, right? That one is always doing it correctly, you know? Um, and I think it's a very powerful voice that I think many of us experience quite frequently when we're practicing, the voice that wonders, am I doing this right? How can I be sure? I need to be certain. And it can be quite intense. I say this from experience. There are times in practice where sometimes you just feel like lost. And it's like you just want to feel like you know what you're doing. You've done it for years. And suddenly it feels like, God, like I don't even remember what it is to like follow my breath anymore, what is just to sit here? Um, and how do I know I'm doing this right? 
And so um, I think that, you know, that desire for certainty to know, to be sure, I think is, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful um, voice, inner voice to pay very good attention to. Um, I think it can reveal a lot. Um, and so uh, I think the first thing I would say is actually um, to, to just really, like, really be interested in the fact that there is this kind of anxiety um, and about this particular issue. Um, I think there's also, I think, uh, some interesting, um, almost like an assumption or like a, a picture that's like maybe in the background of this question, which is that somehow if um, the ideal way to practice is, or the ideal outcome of practice would be to be um, somehow purified of all one's desires or attachments. Um, and I think that um, anytime we're, op we're practicing with a kind of implicit picture of how we think a successful practice would look, um, we're not actually being truly attentive to what's going on, but operating with this kind of like, sort of sense, this goal of how, you know, things are supposed to look if things are going well or if they work out properly in the end. Um, and those kind of pictures are almost always false in, in some way. And they're often projections of some kind of desire that propelled us into practice in the first place. You know, um, a desire to get away from some aspect of ourselves, desire to be a certain kind of person. Um, so I think that, um, you know, like whether or not there's a certain kind of sort of hidden agenda and assumption about what a, a good practice life would look like, I think is, I think is something again, to be like on the lookout for. Um, and I'm saying these things um, again, like, as you can tell, they're all like ways of like looking at questions, see like where they're arising from, like what are, what are the, um, what, what is moving us to feel like this is the thing that, that needs to be settled if I'm gonna know what it is to practice correctly. Um, and, um, and so they're, they're not like, this, these aren't like, I'm sure this is happening. It's not like I can read this person's mind. It's more like I'm putting these out there as um, invitations for sort of introspection. Do they resonate? Do any of these accounts resonate either with the person who's asking um, this particular question or with other people who may see themselves in this kind of question, maybe not with this particular issue, but this way of like, you know, wanting to feel like they have a firmer grip on what it is to practice in a particular situation. You know, often we think like, if I can just figure it out, if I can just figure out what to do, that will be the solution. But actually often in practice, the thing is to look at what is creating, where is, the, where is anxiety stemming from that makes us feel so unsure in the first place? And that like, I have to figure this out. Because what our experience is, is that anxiety, the unsureness, 
And we think that if we figure out what to do, how to go forward, then we can settle it. But actually, right already, we have something to work with, which is that very uncertainty, right? And, the, and that's the thing that's actually calling out for attention. Um, but it's so uncomfortable that we are like, we're, we're eager for the solution that will make that discomfort go away, right? Um, but then we risk missing the lesson that the discomfort has to teach us. Um, so, um, so that's just, I think, another thing that I would say. And I think another thing um, that I would just throw out there is that um, you know, from striving with their career, deciding on taking a trip to relax, or simply decided once you learn a new skill. Um, there's nothing incompatible with practice and working on one's own cravings and desires and attachments. There's nothing compatible with practicing with all of that and having a life that is filled with um, activity, that's filled with creativity, that's filled with action, you know. Um, I think there is a, there's a, and I, I'm, I speak from my own experience, I think there is this, like, very, it's very easy to fall into the sense that like practices in a way the path of renunciation, you know, um, and that somehow we have to give up um, our our goals, our desires, and, and this question of like how do I, you know, how do I, how do I cultivate a career and and practice at the same time as if they're somehow intention, right? This is a question I get a lot from my college students, like how am I gonna do anything with my life if I practice, right? Doesn't this mean like, just like giving up on all ambition and all, all goals, right? All this stuff. Um, but but what's interesting is that that already sort of suggests that we wouldn't actually be active in life, doing things, making things, creating things, if we weren't either driven by craving or I think this is actually the, the, the answer that's most resonant with my students at Williams, like driven by fear. Um, you know, uh, I don't think that's exactly motivating this particular person's question. I'm gonna to return to this particular formulation in a second, but because I think this does speak to a lot of other people, especially the students I teach at Williams. I wanna say is like, what's fascinating is how often I hear students say something to the effect of, if I, if I let go of fear, if I let go of this need to achieve, um, then I'm not going to do anything. And then I, I turn the question, I, I turn that formulation around on them and say, like, so that means that you wouldn't, you literally think you wouldn't do anything if you weren't constantly driven by fear, you know. Um, and and as people, students are actually said, like, I'm I'm wary of not being hard on myself, you know, not judging myself, not driving myself because. I worry that I won't do anything because actually the sad truth is that I think for a lot of their lives, that has been the experience of activity. They have done things simply because there was some scary consequence if they didn't, you know, um, you know, and and so it's sad but understandable that they associate fear with motivation, you know, or like craving of a certain kind, like a need to to achieve, but also shadowed 
by a certain kind of fear that if I don't achieve, I'm not going to be worthy. I won't be worthy of the affection of my family, the recognition of my friends, etc. So fear, of course, haunts this kind of craving, as fear haunts so many things. And, but I think, you know, that is not the only reason people do things. People create, do work, serve others, also out of the desire, uh, out of like a, a plenitude or a fullness of energy, you know. Um, and, um, and so there is another form of motivation that this fear and anxiety and, and this kind of need to achieve kind of covers over um, screens from view. But it's, it's the kind of motivation that I think practice, deep practice can uncover desire to just be part of the creative energy of the universe. Um, you know, it's not as if we just sit like lumps of stone, if we like sat and, and, and lost all our attachments and, and fears and all this stuff, we'd probably be like more full of energy and want to express it in different ways by doing things, you know, whether it be creating art or serving people or just, you know, um, uh, helping our family or whatever it may be. I mean, it just, I, I think the thing is, it's like there's no there's no um, principles or something like rules or like you know framework one could read um, to to figure out what to do, but it just there is this kind of sense that I wouldn't act if I didn't have either craving, desire, or fear in some way. But it's not true. I think it's not true. Um, There's actually um, someone I'm going to mention in the response to my next question of Buddhism and Christianity, but it's like he's very he's, his 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 work is very apropos to this conversation actually, and it makes sense. Everything is so connected anyway. But his name is Brother David Stendelrast. He's a Catholic monastic who's also um, a, a serious Zen practitioner, and he was um, named by the Vatican to be their envoy to. Um, the Jap Japanese Buddhist communities. And he spent many years in Japan doing Zen training. And um, he has, uh, his, his work centers on the idea of gratefulness. Um, and uh, he has this thing called the, the Gratefulness Project, um, which you can find has, has a, a lot of online stuff. But, um, but he likes this term gratefulness rather than gratitude, because he said, you know, Experience of gratitude is actually one of fullness. And if you experience deep gratitude, it's so full it overflows and overflows into action in the world. You're not content just being there, feeling a certain way. Naturally, you want to do things in the world. Um, and so um, I think there's just really, uh, you know, this kind of, um, yeah, a, a positive motivation. Um, that isn't doesn't need to be shadowed by a desire to, to achieve or, or a fear of what would happen if we didn't achieve, you know. And I think um, I think another thing to say here is that you know one of the ways that I understand what Buddhist practice is about is um, is the practice of authenticity. Um, and it's not it's not authenticity, I think, in this or this the way that we often understand it in the West, which is like, 
you know, there's this kind of self inside that needs to be like, you know, manifest itself, you know, self-expression, that kind of authenticity. Like if I could just get in touch with who I really am, you know, then I'll just be able to like, you know, act in the world. Anyway, it's true to that. Um, with Buddhism's skepticism about the substantial reality of the self, it makes sense that, you know, their version of authenticity wouldn't be the same. But I think there is still this idea of like, you know, what we're doing when we practice and we're seeing the kind of thoughts that some of you may have labeled during the sitting, the scripts that we have, right? I think we're just seeing very clearly the ways in which we have been conditioned to think and act and feel in certain ways. Um, and the way that we have been kind of um, turned into like automatons of a certain kind, very sophisticated automatons by our cultural conditioning and all of that. Um, and we say, oh yeah, of course I get angry this way. Of course I think of masculinity this way. Of course I think of sexual desire in this way, right? Um, but as we see more and more clearly all that conditioning, what starts to emerge is what it is to live and respond in a non-conditioned way. At first, we just get glimpses of this, you know? So, um, but more and more, we can start to act from this place that isn't like, you know, the core of who we are, but it's something beneath, beyond um, that conditioning, right? Um, it's, there's no point trying to figure out who it is and what it is, because it's, it's something, but I think, um, so what's interesting is that, you know, even though Buddhism talks about the self as being a kind of illusion or construct, when you actually see like long time Buddhist practitioners, people who have practiced for all, they're actually like very much individuals. <laughs> they're actually, there's a lot of individuality to them. There's a lot of uniqueness to them because when you, it's the conditioning, it's actually the ironic thing is all that conditioning is what makes us just like everyone else, you know? Um, and as you start to see through that, start to become less, you know, shaped by that, um, you start to act more spontaneously in a way that's unique to who you are. And so like, if you want, if you're called to this kind of work, if you want to learn piano, you know, you just, you start to feel these and there's no reason to be skeptical or doubtful. I think then this is where practice becomes super key. It's like, and it all goes back down to, it's just about awareness. And we start to just pick up more clearly, am I doing this? out of fear or out of desire to distract myself or not, you know? And then there's no, no need to, to like be paranoid about our impulses. Like, am I just, you know, is this just craving or not? Um, as if like, I wouldn't want to do all these things if desire wasn't operating in some way, you know, under the surface in some unconscious way. Now, of course, over time, we may realize the things that we thought we want to do, we actually were doing out of fear, but there's no shortcuts. Over time, you just need to see in a more textured, nuanced, clear way what is authentic and what's not. And there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no criteria, there's no rules you can go by to know that. There's no commandments, there's no, you know, principles to go by. Um, and so I think these questions are wonderful you know, for that reason. I think this kind of questioning is exactly the essence of what practice is. But I think the key is to, again, like look at what is it that's giving rise to these questions and also 
um, to, to, to clarify if there are some of these assumptions about what we'd be like if we're really practicing seriously that aren't necessarily actually the truth. Um, so um, also last thing I'm gonna say, wow, this answer is like long, I, I really can blab on, I'm sorry. So how can one ensure time isn't simply filled in a being? The interesting thing is one can always be, even if you realize what you're doing is just distracting yourself and filling time. Like, let me take my classic example of just doing something at a craving um, and just to distract myself, eating a bag of Doritos, okay? Like you just like, you're just like, okay, like, you know, you eat that one, oh, you're done. Like you can't stop, right? But at any moment in that process of mindlessly eating Doritos, you can decide to bring awareness to it. And this is the interesting thing, you know, it's like, you can decide to stuff your face mindlessly with this junk food in a mindful way. Mindfulness can intervene at any moment. Tony Packer, this wonderful um, meditation teacher, um, had this student who could not, could like overcame all these different kinds of compulsion addictive behaviors, all deeply rooted in both fear and craving. Um, and I think, you know, craving and fear, I think there's a nice diet. They always go together, I think, or often do. But, um, but she quit smoking, she quit using other substances, uh, all this stuff, right? She could not stop biting her fingernails so much that like she made her fingers bleed, that kind of biting her fingernails. She found it a loathsome habit. She was ashamed of it. And she went to Tony and said, like, I can't. And you know what Tony Packer said? Don't try to make yourself stop. Bring the most rigorous, careful attention to the act of biting your fingernails. Um, do it and do it with as much clarity as possible. And what this person found, Joan Tollefson's her name, who's now a teacher as well, discovered that that actually healed her of this compulsion. And actually it's something, I would have used my own example I, with my own eating disorder. I'll just say that, you know, when I moved to Zen Center and I had bulimia, right? And so I did the same thing, whereas there's a few times where I'm still like compelled by this disorder and I was not free of it. And I was still acting it out for the first few months I was at the, at the Zen Center. I would catch myself and just bring as much clarity and awareness to the process of acting out that disorder as I could. Because if anyone here who has struggled with actually like a profoundly deep addiction or compulsion knows that telling yourself just to stop not going to cut it you know there has to be something deeper that does it and awareness is that thing um, can we just see truly see moment by moment what we're doing um, okay um, wow okay so the 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 next question i yeah god i don't know this seems like so hasty um, I think this person won't mind if I wait a week instead of rushing it. This seems like silly to rush it. Okay. Is that okay? I don't you know. <laughs> okay. So I think I'm going to do that. Okay. Does anyone want to say anything? I, I, cause I've talked for way too long. Um, but you know, this is the kind of stuff that it's also hard to do in this way, this, this general way, because this is the kind of stuff that actually is like makes up the heart of what, um, one-on-one -on -one conversations about Zen practice are like, when you go and talk to a teacher in doing what they call an interview, Dokusan or Daisan, um, instead of me sort of making these speculative, you know, 
propositions, like maybe it's this, maybe, you know, a lot of it will come out in conversation. Like, and I guess it does this, like, what do you, and then someone can say, yeah, I, I see myself in that, I, I, that, that, but, and then, you know, it, it feels connected to this. And, um, but, but I think this is a good second best. I just want to explain like why, why it may seem a little bit weird for me to offer these general possibilities. The one-on-one -on -one stuff is where it really gets really interesting. Um, okay, um, so any, any thoughts, further you know, responses to this person's wonderful question or, um, or subsequent questions that may have emerged in the response of my meandering response? What I suggest, friends, then, is that we sit for one minute before we say goodnight. Would that be nice? That would be nice. I'd like that. Okay. <clears throat> so for those of you who are new, I like to do this. I don't like to end with talk. I like to end with quiet. So let's sit for one minute, and I'll tell you when it's over. Okay, I just want to give a little um, disclaimer, this is the right word, about my answer to the question of Buddhism and Christianity for next week. In case anyone's expecting like a, a, a theological discussion or theory, no, <laughs> I'm not, not going to talk about the connection between Buddhism and Christianity at that level. It's going to be, it's, it's, I'll, I'll say a little bit, but that it's mostly going to be about, um, in a similar spirit to how to practice with these very sort of uncertainties that are coming up. So, um, but there is a little bit about, about people like Brother David Sendelraz who um, have bridged the divide between Christianity and, and Buddhism. Some wonderful people I'll mention, but um, not too much, don't worry. <laughs> okay, wonderful to see you all. Um, yeah, Thank you, really, really, have nice. a really good week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Good night, good night, everybody. <laughs>